On this second Sunday of Advent, we emphasize the theme of love as demonstrated in the lighting of the second Advent candle. And we anticipate the coming of Christ our Lord in his second Advent and remember his first Advent when he came as a child. And when Jesus came as a child in the first Advent, the most typical word to describe what happened is incarnation. It's not a word that we use every day. It's not a word that really a lot of people perhaps understand or even recognize in our culture. But incarnation, in effect, means God with us, that God entered human history. As we think about this Advent season and the coming of Christ, three words come to mind at least for us to focus on this morning. One is history, one is humanity, and the third is humility. One of my favorite stories of all time comes from World War II when a lot of parents had a tradition of uh, helping their children to understand who their father was who happened to be away in war. And of course, as you know, in World War II, being away in war could mean a number of years. And so many family members would have a portrait in their living room or some other place of the father who was away on this mission. And the mother would frequently tell the children, this is what your father looks like. This is the kind of man that he was. And the kids would look at it and wonder and pray for his return. And on one occasion, when they were looking at the picture and the mother was describing the father, one of the little boys in the family said, Mom, wouldn't it be great if Dad could just step out of the frame? That's what happened on Christmas. God stepped out of the frame. He stepped into time and space, away from eternity, and became one of us in history. The Christian religion is grounded in history. Everything surrounding it touches history because Jesus was part of our history. He walked with us. The Old Testament had told us marvelous stories concerning God and showed us the mighty acts of God especially through prophets and through miracles, the parting of the Red Sea and manna coming down out of heaven and quail too. But we've never seen God in the flesh. Moses is representative, Elijah his prophet, but not God walking around with us. That's what the incarnation does for us. It's God entering history in a way that no other religion claims to have happened. As a matter of fact, that's why Paul, I think, in 1 Corinthians says, it's either scandalous, this notion of God being human and dying on a cross, or it's just foolish. Who would believe such a thing? But we're called as Christians to believe it as the foundation of our hope. Yes, we saw the invisible God act in miraculous ways, but we never saw the real person of God walk on the dusty roads of Palestine and talk to and touch people. We never saw God say to the children, come to me, be with me. The disciples, of course, said the children shouldn't be near Jesus because he was a man of importance and men of importance have important things to say to important people, namely adults. And Jesus said, no, bring the children to me because just like they are, That's a sign of the kingdom of God. God in the flesh walked with people. He touched people and healed them with his real flesh and blood, hands. The deaf, the blind, 
the lame. And he touched people, as we've noted, in these encounters with Jesus that we've talked about all semester, like lepers who were outcasts and no one should touch them. That was God in human history demonstrating to us God in the flesh. And he spoke against power structures, didn't he? Power structures that abuse the poor. Power structures that abuse people who did not have individual rights. God in human history. Interacting with real people and real culture, real history. There's God. But it's more than just history. It's humanity. God entered into our flesh and blood. He assumed this thing called a physical reality. How in the world could it happen? We still don't understand, but we believe. God entered that human history, walked where we walked. The children demonstrated it so well. (laughs) Didn't they seem so ordinary? They were just people. People on a journey, which of course only went from here to there, demonstrating a journey of a pregnant woman, greatly pregnant, any time about ready to give birth. And in the womb of that woman, Son of God bounced on the back of a donkey and was birthed with all the water and blood that every birth is for human beings and cried after the coming out of the womb and was fed at the breast of Mary and was comforted by parents and lay beside animals that stunk. That's God in humanity. And that God in humanity, we know, from the person of Jesus Christ, walked where we walked and experienced everything in terms of human emotions and especially in terms of temptation towards sin that we've experienced. You face it right now, don't you? Just last week. You thought you would be overcome by the temptation that so easily ensnares you, that has ensnared you and you've been overcome by it over and over again. And in the midst of the difficulty of that temptation, you've said to yourself, haven't you? Maybe God doesn't understand. God was tempted, according to the Bible, in Jesus Christ, to the same extent and more than you have ever been tempted. He walked in our flesh. Of course, the great news is that Son of God who walked in our flesh and was tempted to the depths that we were, and we see that story in the New Testament over and over again, and to a greater depth, I believe, than we were tempted. That Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, never submitted to temptation and was victorious over sin, and died a real death, and bled a real blood, and was raised again for our justification. And the remarkable thing is that God in the flesh, that God in the flesh stood in our place. I love what Martin Luther said about God in the flesh. He said, it was God deep in the flesh. Listen to these words. The true Christian religion, he says, does not begin at the top, as all other religions do, it begins at the bottom. You must run directly to the manger and the woman's tomb, womb. Embrace this infant and virgin child in your arms and look at him. Born, nursed, growing up, going about in human society, teaching, dying, rising again, ascending above the heavens and having 
all authority. This means that in some measure, this is a mysterious thing for theologians. They argue about it incessantly, and I'm not here to argue about it. But in some measure, it means God divested himself. God gave up divine priority, prerogative, and entered human flesh and went down. We hear it in the words of Paul when he tries to tell us what it's like to follow God in the person of Jesus Christ. He says, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality something to be grasped, be held onto, but instead he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What did it mean for God to divest himself of his divinity? I don't know all the implications of that, but I do know a certain number of things that the Scripture teaches. When God divested himself in some measure of his divinity, He actually was tempted, as I said, just like we were, but yet without sin. And because of that, the writer of the book of Hebrews says he's able to understand your human weakness because he was there. And since he did not sin, he is the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. And in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin had never sinned, to become sin for us. Not because he sinned, but because he became sin for us. To become sin for us, so that in him and through him, we might become the righteousness of God. Are you kidding me? Would God do that? Yes, he did. Because of Jesus Christ, I can become the righteousness of God unthinkable. On any given day, I can't hardly believe it. That because of Jesus Christ, I have become the righteousness of God. Not me. Yes, me. Because of Christ. That's because he came in real human history. That's because he came into the real human condition. And he couldn't have done that without the third word, unbelievable humility. He had it all. He was it all. And he let it go to be one of us and submitted to the lowest level of human society. Not born in a palace, but born in a stable. And living among the poor. And being a prophet with the poor. Being God in the flesh as poor. That's humility. You know, the best example is not just the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 2 that he humbled himself and became one of us. 
It's the picture that God gave us in the flesh when he was with the disciples and he said to the disciples, you call me Master and Lord and I am. He could have said, I'm the Lord of the universe. He could have said, I'm the co-creator of everything exists. He could have said, the only reason you breathe and have life is because of me. You worship me as Master and Lord and that's true. But as your Master and your Lord, I'm going to wash your feet. Now, we've heard that story so many times, but can you imagine the symbolism in that moment? Listen to me. This is what he did. He took off his outer garments, the stuff that made him who he was, and almost naked in the flesh, he puts a towel around his waist. The towel of a servant likely with nothing above it, and becomes their servant and washes their feet. Those folks knew the servants, and they knew God could never be that. But Jesus said, as a servant, I wash your feet. That's ultimate humility. That's ultimate humanity. That's remarkable history. And all of it is a definition of love. This is love. That's why God, communicating through John, could say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not die, which, by the way, is very natural. We're all going to die but instead will inherit, if he believes, eternal life so that death will be overcome by life itself. All because of the love of God. Or to put it in the words of John later in 1 John, he said, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us. We ought to love God. He's holy and righteous and good. That's a no-brainer. That's not the definition of love. The definition of love is that God loved us and gave himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Stood in our place. Love. I love the second candle. It reminds us of what God and Jesus Christ is all about. Love. I love to see it experienced in my own life with my wife and my children and my friends and my congregation. But I know it's just a tiny, tiny little reflection of the deep eternal love of God. I thank God that I've been allowed through Jesus Christ to experience that love and understand it to a certain level and understand it more and more. If you haven't, if it's just an idea to you, if it's just a concept, if it's just Jesus in the manger, This is a great time to adopt a new and deep understanding of God in the flesh who died for you. A wonderful point in your human history to accept the love of God. If you haven't, I hope you'll do that today. For those of you who have received that love of God in Jesus Christ and understand Him to be your Lord and Savior, with me, every time you see the Advent candle, 
Every time you see a manger, every song you hear, remember the deep love of God in Jesus Christ for you. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that uh, in the person of Jesus Christ, uh, you took on flesh and you walked among us and you showed us what God was like. We thank you that you gave us images that remind us that you came to heal, to save, and you came to restore all humanity to its rightfully ordered place. And you promised to come again. And when you come again, well, the job will be complete. Complete redemption of all that you've redeemed, including the earth itself and the structures that oppress. Lord, we long for that day to see your full and complete redemption. And we anticipate your second coming when all things will be made new. And as we wait, Lord, give us the patience to be the hands and feet of Jesus. You did tell us when you left this earth, you said, I'm gone, but I'm coming back, and you are the body of Christ, the vine and the branches, the presence of Jesus Christ in the world. You, followers, are that. So may we be that presence of Christ in our world. May we emulate the life and the teachings of Jesus. And may we love you so deeply that none of it will be a chore. It will all just be service to our wonderful King in whose name we pray. Amen.